Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Joining us now is Peter Chair from Academy Securities. Peter, it's a remarkable, remarkable situation. Tom and I are talking about these market notes coming from Goldman, Roaring Twenties, coming from JP Morgan, Market Nirvana. And here we are confronting two serious issues. One, a contested election down in Washington, D.C., which people are shrugging off. And two, COVID is still a thing in America. It's becoming a bigger thing again, Pete. Yeah, it's definitely deteriorating. And I can see the point. We started writing about a month and a half ago, that we could see the economy doing much better by the end of 2021 than it even started at 2020. But I think there's a lot to get through first. We really need to know we're going to get stimulus, and not just Band-Aid stimulus, but real infrastructure spending. And yes, we had some really positive news on the vaccine. I think it's going to take a little while. So right now, I'm a little bit bearish in the near term, because I think there's too many hurdles for the market to cross, and everyone got a little bit too bullish in the past week. Peter Cheer, is the market pricing in a Biden presidency? I mean, the way I look at it is the market is looking at, as John says, well out into 2021, and they're not looking, I would suggest, to a Trump 2021. Well, I think we still have to accept that at this point, it looks like it's going to be Biden, that he's going to get through, that we still have the Senate race that's going to come up and those runoffs are important. And I just don't see how we get meaningful stimulus before then. And there's so many uncertainties. Mm-hmm. Although I firmly believe we will get that infrastructure spending, there's a lot to go on before then. So, again, markets, I think, are a little bit complacent right now, a little bit looking you know, too far ahead. And maybe we've got to focus on the here and now a little bit more where there are contested elections, there are issues, and the vaccine, unfortunately, is not here yet. With the gyrations you've seen the last week, have you recalibrated your sector choices here? Mr. Costin and Goldman clearly has done that. Uh, maybe he's making some institutionally easy calls like the OSO and ESG and all that. But parse it out, financials, cyclicals and the rest. What are you looking at as being still movable into next year? So we have really liked what we've been calling the have not. So those sectors that were left behind you know, whether it's small caps, whether it's value, whether it's financials, I think those are going to come, you know, and do very well. And I think big tech is going to be challenged a little bit, in part because I think this kind of scenario of work from home forever is going to dissipate. And you've got some valuation issues there. And then even, you know, I like the financials a lot. And I think one thing that's been missed through this whole talk is a lot of people talk about the shape of the yield curve. Yes, that's good for financials. But you're still having a robust housing sector, which tends to be good for financials. And financials took a lot of loan loss reserves. I think if we're near the end of the pandemic, our ability to deal with it, you won't see those loan loss reserves increase anymore, and you may actually see some release. So I think financials can do very well. They're very underweight. So those are sectors that I've been looking to, and I expect this have not outperformance to continue. Pete, let's talk about the Treasury market. You mentioned it briefly there. Ten-year yields, of course, at that upper end of the range of the last five, six months. Bond market closed today. But here we are at about 97 basis points on a 10-year yield. How much oxygen is there above this level, Pete? I think there's a decent amount. I think we get towards 125 on the 10-year. I think we, as we break through 1%, you'll see some more selling pressure. You'll see kind of people pile into the trade. I think that inflation hopes remain, especially if infrastructure talk comes up. And positioning is just, again, fairly awful. Everyone got so bullish again on the rate side of things. I think we head towards 125. I don't think we get much above that because the Fed will jawbone it down. 
Well, Peter, that's what I wanted to build on as well, not just the jawbone from the Fed, but how the market would respond to that too. Last couple of days, clearly an index sector story for the equity market. At some point, you have to believe with a move up in 10-year Treasury yields, it starts to take a bite out of broader risk appetite. Do you think 125 is where we get it done? I think we've already started seeing that. And I think as we move towards 110, you'll see continued pressure, especially on some of the names that have really relied on this belief that the Fed is here forever, that rates are going to remain permanently low. I think the markets as a whole can adapt to it. Right. I don't think we see a massive sell-off, but it will weigh on the markets. Peter, Lisa emails in from 15 Central Park West, and she's asking about the gloom that's out there uh, right now. What is the <laughs> level of gloom, and is that a wall of worry that will really help us make a David Costin-like move? I don't think so at all, actually. I think the doom kind of completely dissipated with the election, and my streams that go. I follow— became incredibly bullish. Everyone was bullish. So I asked, that's part of why I think we're seeing this rotation. We're seeing some of these sectors fall down is everyone got too bullish post-election and now the reality sits in. And, you know, let's think about it. Everyone's kind of talking about how great this is for DC and all these things. DC often struggles to function at the best of times. It doesn't feel like the best of times in DC right now. Just for the record, for our listeners, our audience worldwide, Lisa does not live at 15 Central Park West, just in case anyone is going to go and try and find Lisa Brown. It's just leave her alone today, Tom. <laughs> Peter, just to wrap this up, this equity market, you like the have-nots in this stock market, mm. right? Yes. But you also say you're nervous about the next couple of months. I understand that. I understand why. Where do you go for the protection, the downside protection? Where do you get it from? So I think right now you're supposed to be selling the winners. You're supposed to maybe be 50% invested. So you want to play this cautiously. I think you're looking for a dip. I think you're looking for that where the market kind of gets disappointed and everything sells off and we don't get the rally like we've had the past couple of days where you really had strength in the Dow, Russell 2000 and weakness in big tech. I think you get a period of time where everything moves down and that's when you want to reinvest heavily, but really focus on loading up on those have not stocks. Peter, great to catch up as Peter, always. Thank you. Peter, cheer there. Thanks of Academy Securities. Me. Peter, we appreciate your time. And Peter, just finally, before we let you go, I know that at your firm, a huge amount of veterans are working for you over at Academy. Peter, can you just speak to that on a day like today, please? Yeah, so it's been a real pleasure working with Academy Securities. We're about 80 people. We're service-disabled, veteran-owned. Our entire management structure is veterans. About 45% of the firm are veterans. And I also have the pleasure that we work with what we call the Geopolitical Intelligence Group, which is 14 retired generals and admirals. So they provide a lot of geopolitical context that sometimes in its own right is very worthwhile, and sometimes it really meshes into what we're doing on the macro. It's been incredibly helpful when we've been dealing with China and our calls on China. So it's been a pleasure with working with these people. Everyone's been great. The service they provide to this country is awesome, and I'm happy to be a part of it. Peter, fantastic work. Very fantastic cool. work over at Academy. Appreciate your time. Really, really cool. For John and I and for Lisa, this is without question our interview of the day on the pandemic. Lawrence Gostin is with Georgetown University. He is definitive on our public health, on our public health law, and I might point out our transitions amid pandemic. Dr. Gostin, a few statistics. Milwaukee, hospitalizations up five times. The 14-day national trend of deaths up 23%. We are back to April 15th in terms of hospitalizations across this nation. Is it worse now or was it worse then? Well, I think it's unquestionably worse now. I mean, it, it was a shock to our system then. You know, we, 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 we literally didn't expect it. But now um, we're going into the winter. 
Um, we've got celebratory dinners. You were just talking about your Thanksgiving. We've got Thanksgiving. We've got Christmas, Hanukkah, other festivals coming up. Um, people are going to be indoors. They're fatigued. They don't really want to do it. And frankly, um, the the Trump administration has basically given up and we're just kind of sitting there waiting for the vaccine and the virus is not waiting. The virus is, you know, is all around us and it's very transmissible. I'm very worried. Yeah. As an aside, Professor, you are invited to the Keene household for Thanksgiving. I'm cooking, and that's a public health risk. Right as, now. As, long as, you don't have the, as long as you don't have the lead pellets in it, I'm fine. Don't go, Professor. <laughs> don't Lord's, go. Lord's gusted. I really want to point out something. When all else fails, fancy suits and ties and dresses form a task force. If Mr. Biden does a task force, what does it And you could be on it. What does a task force do? You know, it advises the president. Um, and, you know, frankly, you know, I know everybody on the on on the uh, his advisory task force. And I and and they're, they're all very, very good people. Um, we had good people on the on the Trump task force. We had, you know, Tony Fauci, we had people, Deborah Burke, CDC people. Um, but, you know, the difference is the tone from the top. You know, uh, Biden's going to say mask up distance, no gatherings. Um, whether that's going to have any effect now, I don't know, because it's so deeply ingrained in our culture. It's like a mask is an icon now. Either you're for it or you're against it. And so I just think, you know, we're sitting ducks until um, we can get a vaccine. I have to say the Pfizer vaccine result exceeded my most optimistic um, hopes. I just never expected to see a 90 percent effectiveness rate. Professor, that's the good news. Let's talk about what we're grappling with right now. We've got this vaccine on the horizon. I want to understand from you, you've talked a little bit about the federal response, the state level response from Massachusetts, from Utah, from New Jersey, just a couple of days ago. What more can they do and what should they be doing? And if they don't, what trajectory do you think we're on? Well, you know, the, the states have only limited powers because people are traveling and they're going to travel for holidays as well. And they're trying to have quarantines and testing requirements for people coming into the state. But that's not always very feasible because you've got them coming in by cars, uh, trucks, every, every possible means, including plane and train. Um, so I think, you know, what, what they can do um, is not open bars, not open restaurants. We should have no indoor bars or dining. Um, we should really make sure that people understand that these indoor large celebratory gatherings are big spreaders of the virus. Um, and there needs to be clear and consistent messaging. That's basically all we can do right now. Professor, I want to go back to John Rawls and almost a theory of medical justice, if you will. And we yeah. don't need to get all philosophical here, but the great divide in America seems to be people that say at no cost we need to frame a public health policy where we don't kill a lot of old people versus other people saying the economy's got to move forward. And, you know, if the sacrifice is a bunch of old people, frankly, like you and me and not young Pharaoh, well, that's a price we pay. What kind of theory of justice is between those two? Well, I mean, the, the first one, you know, the idea that, you know, the Great Barrington Declaration of just, you know, letting it go, letting it run wild, but just save the elderly and the, and, and, and the uh, disabled people is, is 
I've never seen anything like it before because when we talk about herd immunity, we're talking about vaccines. We're not talking about letting a potentially dangerous, fatal virus, you know, spread like wildfire um, across the population. And I really do think that the, the economy um, versus COVID is a very false choice. Um, because if you look at the economies that have started to really bounce back, mostly um, in East Asia, China, places like that, um, they've done it by keeping uh, the coronavirus under control and having really rigorous measures there. That, you know, they had locked down originally, but then they got on top of it. That's what we need to do. It's the only way we're going to open up our economy. Otherwise, people are just going to be afraid to shop, to go to restaurants, bars, movie theaters, um, and, and we'll just, you know, stagnate. And that's what's going to happen until we get a vaccine. Professor, just a final question for me, and I ask this of you with the greatest of respect for the work you do. If some people tune into this today and hear you say things like close the restaurants, close the bars, and they look up at the TV, they listen to the radio and think, here we go again. Someone telling me that I can't go back to work, I can't earn money because of a pandemic that so far hasn't touched me. What's your message yeah. for them? No, I, I totally understand that. You know, my, my message for them is, is that we want the economy to go well, but we don't want to have extraordinarily high risk environments. So indoor bars where people are drinking, they're getting close, they're losing their inhibitions. We see it just spreading like wildfire. It will go to your parents and your grandparents. And so, you know, we can't always think about me. We have to think about the us. And I can say that in countries that have done well, they have, opened up their economy a lot faster than us. Look, what we've done in America hasn't worked so far. Our, our economy is not booming. Um, and the reason for that is we haven't gotten this virus under control. Professor, we appreciate your time this morning and look forward to having you back soon. Lawrence Gostin there, Georgetown University professor. Right now on the equity markets, Alicia Levine with BNY Mellon, really quite good at dovetailing quantitative into the fundamental outlook on the market. Alicia Levine, get quantitative for me right now, looking at something like price to cash flow, price to revenues, price to earnings. Is this market cheap, ready to launch higher, or are you still cautious? So I actually am very optimistic. I mean, we had we had two major game-changing events. We had the election, which probability-wise is going to produce uh, a less activist government than the market probably would have been comfortable with um, in the form of split government. And even if the Georgia races produce a 50-50 Senate, you still have some conservative Democrats that may not go whole hog for the full uh, progressive agenda. So there's that. And then there's the vaccine. And it's not so much that it may be available by the end of the year, which we knew it's the efficacy, which means people are going to take it more likely to be willing to take it. And you can get to some sort of immunity faster because of if the efficacy holds up. Therefore, the chart on the S&P looks great. It looks like it's about to power higher. It's tested. It's held the 3200 level two or three times. It keeps on working out its way towards 3,600. It looks like it's going to move higher. My one word of caution is if you look at the QQQs, it's making lower highs. So if I'm going to be the skunk at the party, 
the skunk at the party is the Q2Q chart doesn't look as solid as the S&P does. And to the extent that these large cap tech stocks are, you know, producing so much of the price action in the S&P, you have to watch that as well. These are the tech names. The Nasdaq peaked in early September. We didn't get back there. Alicia, many people are argue, asking how much risk there is at the index level if big tech gets in trouble here. Big tech did really well with a shutdown. Big tech has done really well without a vaccine. Can it continue to do really well with a vaccine? Right. So we think in the next couple of months, tactically, the cyclicals and the value will outperform on a relative basis. But you still need tech to hang in there on some level. So you can't have one of those terrible days where NASDAQ's down you know, 4 or 5% um, because the S&P will not be able to make progress then just because tech is overweighted so much um, on the index level. It just has to perform a little bit. And as we know, going forward, going forward, it's your growth names that are really going to be carrying the market, not so much value and cyclical going forward. This is a tactical trade because the Fed is staying easy and rates are staying low. And even if the 10-year gets to 2%, which is really hard to imagine, your, your, negative, your yields are still negative until the 10-year gets to 2%. So your real yields are still negative. So you have a lot of juice in the, in the trunk here for the market moving higher. I just You can't have tech fall out of bed. You can't because you'll never get the index moving. Yeah. Alicia, stick with me. I've got to do a couple of things. I want to get to the European bond market quickly and pick up on what's happening in Italy at the moment. The 10-year yield just rolled over, down about five basis points on a session now to 71 basis points on a 10-year. Here's the why. ECB President Christine Lagarde speaking right now and alluding to her view that PEP, which is the Pandemic Emergency Purchase Programme at the ECB, is likely to remain the main ECB tool, along with Taltros. Now, this is important, Tom, because as we work our way through 2020 and out into 2021, that asset purchase program has a huge amount of flexibility that the traditional asset purchase program on the sovereign side of the ECB over the last few years did not. Her ability to get the governing council to stick with her and stick with that through 21 and not just go back to the old ways, keep that flexibility, gives them a lot of comfort on the peripheral side of well, things, which I think is what the read across is right now. You take that headline, you drop it into the periphery, and you bid up Italian bonds. Well, let's make it simpler. She's saying they will take in less pristine paper, so it's price up, yield down, right? They will have the ability, if they so wish, to maintain that flexibility to lean into the periphery a little bit more, Tom, and maybe not buy as many buns and buy some more BTPs if they need to. You remember back in March when they said we're not here to close spreads? That headline right there tells you everything we need to know. They are here to close spreads. They know, and this is the delicate dance played out in Europe much more cleanly than what we're seeing play out in the United States. They know that on the fiscal side, there's still work to do. And they know to get that work done, these governments are going to have to issue a lot more debt. What are they doing? They're keeping interest rate costs a whole lot lower. Alicia Levine of BMY Mellon still with us. Alicia, this is the story, isn't it? Central banks aren't going to remove themselves from the game in 2021. Things have changed. Used to be the case that when things get bad, they step in. And when things get better, they'll step away again. In 21, if things get better, they'll still be in the game, won't they? That's right. I mean, that's also fuel for, for the market. You know, the discussion of the, of the average inflation targeting was precisely for moments that were in 
today, when the expectations of growth tick up a notch, the expectations for inflation pick, pick up a notch. And the, you know, the announcements over the summer in September were precisely for this moment saying to the market, we are going to stay put and we're going to let growth take hold and we need to heal the labor market. It was for moments like that we're in today. And so we have wind at our back here. Alicia, great to catch up, as always. Alicia, Alicia Levine there you. of being White Mellon. I'm glad Piano Matters because that is what it's about. His father was a legend. There's no other way to put it, including starting out uh, at an older age, 12 years old, I believe, on his instrument. I think of Lostin Harris at the Carlisle studying under Marcellus years and years ago. And it brought on a generation of people who, guess what? They reinvented jazz and drove it forward into the modern age. David Rubenstein, peer-to-peer conversations, and Mr. Rubenstein digresses away from the politics in the moment with a gentleman from Lincoln Center. David, what did you learn in speaking to Mr. Marcellus? Of course, I learned, sadly, that his father had died. Yes. And his father was an incredible jazz pianist, and he produced uh, four sons who were also jazz musicians. Winton is maybe the best known of them. Uh, for the things he's done at Lincoln Center. But also, he was a, a classical music, musician as well. He actually won a Grammy Award one year for classical music. The same year, he also won a Grammy Award for jazz. Jazz is probably the most American type of uh, music we have. It was invented in this country. It's personified by so many people in this country. And it's one of our great exports in the music world. Uh, hip-hop, you could also say, is invented here. But jazz for almost a century has been the most American a pure American form of music. Which way would he like jazz to go? We talk of the death of opera. They're all aging. We talk of philanthropists like yourself trying to save classical music. I don't believe jazz needs saving, but which way does he suggest jazz will go? Well, he thinks jazz needs to be better known. Of course, it's not known by everybody, and it's an acquired taste. But sadly, he and other musicians today aren't able to perform as much because of COVID. So he did come back from a tour recently, but it was unusual. Usually musicians right now all across the country are not able to perform right now because there aren't really live audiences. And it's in a sad situation for the performing artists in our country right now, because a lot of them just don't get income uh, unless they perform. And it's hard for them to perform right now. He's an unusual situation, though, because he's so well known. He's doing so many different things. But he worries about so many other jazz musicians and other musicians who cannot perform right now. David, tell us about the sanctity of copyright. Carlisle's looked at this. I know Blackstone's been involved as well. Jazz musicians survive on copyright. The copyright rates in Europe are much more artist-friendly. Does he feel that people can get paid into the future? Well, we didn't quite address that, but we did uh, talk about something very important related to that, which is that jazz is something that is uh, very... um, Uh, It changes a lot. In other words, when you're a jazz musician, you have copyrighted music, Mm -hmm. but you riff a lot. You keep playing a little bit longer than you maybe were supposed to. You change what you were, what was written for you. It's a, it's a a music, music form that evolves a bit. And uh, it's not as easy to copyright in some respects, but on the other hand, um, I I do feel that jazz music is probably not as well known in all Mm -hmm. parts of the country as it is in, let's say, New Orleans or Chicago or New York, but it's incredibly popular outside the United States as well. Also, I wanted to point out that uh, he has dealt with racism 
uh, as all jazz musicians who are black, no doubt, have done, and all, all blacks, I presumably, have done as well. And even though he's famous, he does talk about in the interview the fact that he still feels discriminated against, and he felt it when he was growing up in a segregated South. So although he's a famous musician, he hasn't escaped the racism that uh, people of his uh, race have uh, mm -hmm. suffered in our country. David, Goldman Sachs today went exceptionally positive on 2021 and 22, and there's the noise of a vaccine. Of course, a small matter of an election that we're contesting right now. Does David Rubenstein have an optimism like some of the strategists looking forward two years? I think the, well, the vaccine news is positive recently, and I do think that some point in 2021, uh, we'll begin to get vaccinated uh, sufficiently to make us be able to go back to work or enable us to go back to work. And I do think the election will get resolved in the not too distant future in some way. Um, it's interesting to me, uh, you know, President Trump um, is still contesting it. But, you know, I've often thought the best job in the United States is being a former president of the United States. You don't have to get blamed for anything and you can do whatever you want. And if you're a former president of the United States and you maybe could run again, that's even a better job. So, if I were he, I would probably say, geez, I might be a former president. I might run again. So um, he might look at it that way. But in any event, I, I hope this will be resolved in the not too distant future. David Rubenstein, thank you so much. Peer-to-peer -peer conversations, a digression here to Wynton Marsalis in the future of jazz. Look for that tonight at 9 p.m. across all of Bloomberg. Really looking forward to that uh, a conversation. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. <laughs>